Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 8 Craftsman of Destruction When Hermione awoke the next Sunday morning, she did feel a little better. In some ways, the situation had improved insofar as she was hopeless, which made it possible to dispense with the taxing work of remaining hopeful. More than that, however, Hermione was determined to have the same faith in Fleur which Fleur had in her own self, and to be there for Fleur if she were chosen. If it were necessary, Hermione was willing, more than willing, to research and study and do whatever was required for her. In some ways, Hermione had failed last night, but she ought to have known better than to fantasize that Fleur wouldn't enter the tournament— she went to breakfast with a resigned, fatalistic peace. She felt her appetite again, noticing its return more than she had its departure. Hermione even felt adventurous, so she reached for some kind of brown cheese on brown bread. It was unlike any cheese she'd had before, creamy, salty, savory, with a strong and unexpected suggestion of caramel. She took a handful of odd berries as well, red-orange, near-raspberries that were tart and floral. "'Good morning,' Fleur said brightly. "'Enjoying the... what is that exactly?' "'I've no idea,' Hermione replied. "'I think it's from Durmstrang.' Hermione wanted to speak with Adalia, but she hadn't been showing up to breakfast for the past couple of days. While a bit of Hermione was jealous that the older student could skip eating and not be hounded, there was another part which was pleased that Fleur cared. Hermione spent the whole period at breakfast, making up for lost time and... This was just as important, proving to Fleur that she was doing just fine now and that there wasn't any need to worry on her behalf. Either because it had become her habit, or because she was keeping an eye on Hermione, Fleur remained, even as other Beaubaton students removed themselves. It was a bearable situation. The goblet of fire remained at the edge of her awareness, but Hermione was able to carry on almost as if it wasn't there. She plied Malfoy with more questions about his family, and learned that his cousin would be visiting Hogwarts soon to help set up for the tournament. With Ginny and Luna, the latter visiting from the Ravenclaw's table, she spoke about Portrait Club, which had been amusing, but about which Hermione had some reservations. Portraits weren't human, but they were still people, weren't they? Hermione carefully avoided the subject of Ginny's brothers. She might not be able to dance around the topic, but she could at least stay on the far side of the room and refuse to make eye contact with it. When the dishes vanished themselves and the tables were all bare, Hermione excused herself from all present company, Fleur included, and went in search of Adalia. It wasn't difficult to find her. Adalia was practicing on the shores of the Black Lake again, or rather she had been, for now Adalia was reclining back on a sloppily conjured armchair while Lena applied bruise-removal paste to one of her eyes, which was turning as black as her hair. It looked sensitive, but Adalia was reading as if it were just a bit of makeup. "'Adalia,' said Hermione, and she waited for Adalia to look up from the young witch's guide to pugilism before she resumed. "'Fleur put her name in the goblet of fire last night. "'Yeah, she told me she would do so. "'Bursling tells me you're less than happy about that.' Adalia smiled knowingly. Hermione shrugged. "'It is what it is, and I can't do anything about it except—never <sighs> mind. "'Except hope that the goblet chooses me instead,' Adalia said. Lino stiffened momentarily, but Adalia didn't seem put out by the idea. "'Yes,' Hermione said, a little embarrassed by the admission anyway. "'That isn't why I came to talk with you, though. I wanted to ask if you'd help me. 
you've been training with her. I know that you've been doing that to prepare for the tournament, but will you keep that up if she's chosen, even if you aren't the Bobaton champion? Adalia grinned. Of course. Thank you, Adalia, Hermione said, and then, catching Lino's eye and knowing what he must have been thinking, Hermione added, If you're selected, let me know if you need anything. Whatever you need, I'll help you find it. I'll order you to that, Adalia said. Her tone was light, but Lino's expression echoed the remark with all the seriousness that Adalia's response had lacked. Vicente was no more difficult to locate. It was a pleasant Sunday afternoon, and he had stayed up late playing Scrabble, so it was only to be expected that Vicente had scarcely roused himself from bed by the time Hermione knocked on his door. Vicente, he stifled a yawn. Hermione. I wanted to speak with you about potions, she said. You're training to be a healer, and I know that you don't like dark magic, but they teach that here, and they teach it at Durmstrang, and you still might know what they're taught, because, because that's healing, isn't it? And I know it's a tall order, and it's a lot to ask for, but I was wondering if you could teach me everything that you know. Vicente blinked. Everything? Or most of everything. Anything might be relevant. To start out with, what potions could somebody use ahead of time before, say, a match in a tournament, in order to counter-effect the effects of dark magic or other curses, especially the kind of magic that might be within the reach of students, and would these potions constitute cheating, and if they did, is there any way to disguise their use? Right, give me ten minutes, he said, and the door shut. True to his word, Vicente returned in exactly ten minutes. He was better dressed, but still tired, so they shared, or rather Hermione supplied, and Vicente drank coffee as they talked. There were, of course, many charms and other kinds of spells besides that could be cast onto or otherwise used to enchant an object. The extension charm was one of the most common examples, but the extinguishing charm could, cast one way or another, make a handkerchief good for putting out fires or keep it from burning. Gloves could break fingers if they had been bewitched with the finger-snapping hex, and the most common variety of invisibility cloak was created by way of the disillusionment charm. It might be cheating to rely on such measures in the tournament. Vicente wasn't sure, but Hermione could find out for him. That hardly mattered, though. Vicente stated more than once that he wouldn't mind discussing purely hypothetical scenarios, even if they were banned. The Triwizard Tournament always involved a certain amount of cheating in the past anyway, and besides, there was the Haywood girl. All that business took Hermione clear to lunch. Again, she ate more heartily before, and even felt good enough to help herself to some jellied eel. The die had been cast, as Caesar once said, and Hermione could only play the hand which she had been dealt, but she was determined to play it well. Resignation was not defeat. It could be the first step on the road to success. Heartened by her progress that day, Hermione refocused on her studies. The classes she was taking only barely outnumbered the courses she had to keep up with by correspondence, and Hermione had not, for all that she'd seen, given up her intention to achieve every last SI it was possible for her to take. If she had to help Fleur as the school's champion, then that only heightened Hermione's need to be on top of her schoolwork. Her Greek was more than passing, and Hermione spent most of the afternoon getting ahead in her Greek reader. By dinner, Hermione had completed the hymns of Orpheus, who had practiced an odd, extinct magical tradition in which incantations were sung more than spoken, and when she returned, she was ready to work on the purifications of Empedocles. Later there would be essays on both sets of verse, independently and in comparison to each other and to the poetry of Circe. When Hermione went to bed that night, she was content and her dreams did nothing to dispel that feeling by Monday morning. Werewolf studies was her only class of the day, but it was early and it was long. 
a two-hour or double period like potions had been, so Hermione ate breakfast quickly and went on her way. Hermione had gotten the impression from potions and her conversations with other students that each class period was composed of students from just two houses, but members of all four houses seemed to be present when she reached the classroom. There were surely some werewolves here, and Hermione looked about, ready to pick them out by their scars and malaise, but every student was as lively, hale, and unblemished as the next. It was a strong contrast with Professor Lupin's marred and haggard features. When he spoke, his voice carried with it the steadfastness of the perpetually exhausted, and his eyes, though tired, were nevertheless alert and bright. "'Today's lesson will be an eminently practical one,' he began. "'As those of you who have experienced it will already know, the transformation will probably leave you feeling like a bit of an old ham that's been in somebody's shoe for three days. And that's just if you go unmedicated,' he noted. "'When you're on Wolfsbane, you'll feel ten times worse because—' "'Wolfsbane is a poison!' droned every student in the room except for Hermione. When Professor Lupin smiled, he looked ten years younger. "'Exactly so. At fourteen, you're getting close enough to being old enough that you might be expected to fend for yourselves. Your family are going to feel just as bad as you, or even worse if they haven't gotten used to the transformation yet, so you can't count on somebody else being around to hold your head over the water, as it were.' "'Though for those of you who are just taking this class because a friend of yours is a werewolf, I appreciate that more than you can know. I want everyone here to be able to fend for themselves, but even more, I don't want anyone to need to, and that isn't possible without you. Now then, on to recuperation. Pay attention, please. Most of what we study until Christmas will tie back to this in some way.' Professor Lupin made a few motions with his wand, and a boar appeared in his desk, belly up and legs stiff. It was quite massive and, thankfully, quite dead. Food will help you to recover from the after-effects of the wolfsbane of the transformation. What will help most of all, because the curse hungers for it, is human flesh. But the next best thing, he said, speaking over the scandalized murmurs as if they weren't there, is the flesh of pigs, who are, in many respects, more like humans than not. If Hermione had ever been one to slouch in class, she would have been sitting at attention now— she was already aware of the equivalences between humans and pigs. It was not uncommon for magical researchers to experiment on pigs before advancing to humans, but that particular connection was one she hadn't drawn before. "'This is just a conjured boar,' Professor Lupin continued. "'So it isn't food. And if you try to eat it, then you'll do nothing but upset your stomach. But everything I show you will still apply. Just make sure that you make arrangements to have a pig before you feel like you've been left as bludger bait for the past eight hours. As I said, food will help, but that isn't enough on its own. Your stomach may feel bottomless, especially if you're on the tail end of the transformation, but it really isn't, which means that you should go for quality over quantity. With a twist of his wand, Professor Lupin lifted the pig into the air and split apart its abdomen. Hermione tried not to retch at the smell as its guts fell out onto his desk. Professor Lupin continued his lecture, as though a demonstration in field-dressing large animals was nothing unusual. "'Begin at the rear like so, then move up. If you can suspend the pig with a levitation charm, then do so, and gravity will do a lot of the work for you, but just leave it on the ground if you think you might launch it into the air instead. Now you're going to want to split the pelvic bone—that's this right here—and be careful not to pierce the intestines. If you do, apply a sterilizing charm. Your ordinary scouring charm may not suffice, and might even impact the quality of the meat. 
It'll mostly just impact the flavor, but that's no reason to do this wrong. You may need something stronger than the cutting charm in order to get through the bones. If you can use it with precision, then the woodsman's curse is best. If you cannot, then I recommend Sawyer Pittman's ripping charm. We will cover both of these, probably in November. Hermione raised her hand. Miss Granger, is that right? Yes, sir, Hermione said. And then, when Professor Lupin indicated for her to continue, she asked, Isn't the ripping charm rather dark magic? There were a few sounds of disbelief from the other students, but Lupin didn't seem perturbed. I imagine that you're from Bobeton rather than Durmstrang, he said, but it didn't sound like he was marking her for it. Anyway, the Ministry of Magic removed it from the catalogue of restricted charms some time ago. While the ripping charm will inflict grievous damage on a living target, there's no risk that the carter will lose control of the spell or be harmed by its repeated use, and incurability is no longer grounds for classification under the dark arts, not in Britain. Hermione nodded silently, and Professor Lupin resumed his lesson. Once you have disposed of the ribcage, you should be able to find the heart. After you've removed it, you should look for the stomach, this organ, Lupin said, pointing at a bulgy question mark that had been turned on its side. If the pig is on its back, and its belly faces yours, then the stomach will be on the right, like so. Remove the stomach and set it beside the heart. Food doesn't pass through the stomach immediately, and it's good for some undigested plant matter to be left over. So if you're preparing this for someone else, you should feed the pig two or three hours before slaughtering. Later this month, we'll talk about what you should feed it, if you have options. The smell was wretched and the sight was awful, and it was growing worse as the class wore on. Hermione didn't eat much meat. It wasn't always available at Beaubaton, not like fish and beef and chicken just sat too heavily for her taste. And she'd never before been presented with the hot carcass as she was now. More than that, however, it was impossible to see it, gut strewn, and hear the professor suggest dark magic for such a utilitarian purpose, and not think again of Haywood. Had she learned the ripping charm, and if she had, would she use it? It couldn't possibly be permitted by the rules, but Hermione was unsatisfied by that fact when Riddle and the ministry were obviously willing to rewrite the rules. Above the stomach right here is the liver, which you should always make sure to include. Next, look for a pair of organs, one on each side, that look a little like beans. Professor Lupin held one up. This is a kidney. It will taste very bad, especially raw, but just one will assist your recovery almost as well as the liver. With a slash of his wand, Professor Lupin decapitated the pig, then vanished the body. The last two organs that you should look for are the brain and eyes. Don't worry about cooking any of this. If the pig is freshly slaughtered, then everything will still be warm, and raw meat is more potent than cooked. At this stage, anyway. If you've eaten everything that I described, then you might remember that you're still very tired. Cast a cooling charm if you can manage it, then let yourself sleep a little, and prepare the rest of the pig when you wake up. Hermione raised her hand again. At least there were questions with which to distract herself. Won't raw pork make you sick? Professor Lupin shrugged. "'Werewolves benefit very little from the curse. "'We're not stronger, we do not have a keener sense of smell, "'and we certainly can't control when or how we transform, "'but werewolves have, traditionally, been on the fringes of society, "'and for hundreds or even thousands of years, "'and in all that time the curse has never died out. "'There are places in the world, even today, "'where some werewolves are alive only because they can subsist on garbage "'that isn't fit for dogs.' "'Professor Lupin's expression was grave. "'But having a cast-iron stomach,' doesn't mean that you'll feel good when you eat it, and you may have a tough time while your body is still processing the wolf's bane. If you're feeling really poorly and you can't keep down solid foods, 
then you should grind the organs to liquid. You won't have any problems knowing when it's you, but if you're doing this for someone else, then pay attention to the skin. Paleness or greenness, especially in the face, lips, and fingers, is an indication of nausea. Be aware of this and don't make your friends sick. After class let out, Hermione returns to her homework in the open air despite the chill. This year, even more than others, she needed to get ahead so that she had room to slip without falling behind. Professor Fayo had, against McGonagall's advice, provided study materials so that Hermione could pursue alchemy until she returned from Hogwarts. It wouldn't do to disappoint him, and there might be some interesting correspondences with Transfiguration, so by the time evening rolled around, she was already working on her first essay of the school year. Tuesdays were busy, but comfortably so. History and Transfiguration before lunch, and then ghoul studies, again with Professor Lupin. It would only be three hours or four with lunch, and still leave most of the afternoon for homework and studying. History of Magic was taught by Professor Bonnie Tracar, the owl-eyed vampire who ate so carefully and silently at the high table every breakfast and dinner, but had, at least since this year began, made herself scarce during lunch. Her dress was for the most part utilitarian, rather in keeping with the style that Headmaster Riddle seemed to prefer, but around her shoulders was an ornate shawl, stitched with some material that was darker than midnight and embellished with the most delicate gold threads. While the students filed in and took their seats, Professor Tracar stood, motionless except for the twitching of her pupils and the occasional blink of her eyelids. Then, without warning, she pressed her wand against the side of her neck, just before her chin, and began to speak. Her voice was very soft, but it carried as though the professor were speaking directly into Hermione's ears. "'You know the nature of the British project, but only in the broadest way.' "'You didn't understand it. "'You cannot remember what the world was like.' "'Professor Tracar closed her eyes for the slightest moment. "'I am here to remember for you,' she said. "'Her jaws moved only a little, "'and so her pronunciation was strange but still understandable. "'There are many horrors which the Muggles have conspired to invent, "'which they can barely contain, "'and which second even their own people.' All of Breton's people, magical and muggle, are safer from these things than they were twenty years ago, and as far away as China, there are those who would, but for the interference of the ICW, follow our example. Hermione shifted uncomfortably in her seat, but she was able to keep a lock on her tongue. Likewise, we are not alone in knowing that it is wise to separate ourselves from those who do not know and cannot apprehend magic. It should be appreciated that we are all united in the understanding that muggles should be ignorant of our world. The ICW exists for that very purpose, and it was to protect that mission that the world united against Grindelwald. But, of course, there are those who have seen fit to go further. In the Atlantic Commonwealth, Emily Rappaport codified a separation similar to that which exists in Britain, except that muggle-borns were abandoned to the depredations of their families. Hermione's hand shot into the air. Professor Tracar grinned broadly, revealing a mouth full of ghastly teeth, and Hermione quailed. But she didn't put her hand down. Yes, Professor Tracar uttered. My parents never did anything to hurt me. They're muggles, but they never would have— You're a bright girl, Professor Tracar interrupted. Surely you're bright enough not to generalize from a single case, or assume that because things were one way for you, that they would be that way for all people. It isn't just me. I have muggle friends too, 
Then go to any archive and request their records, and see what muggles have wrought on muggle-borns. Compare the attendance rolls of any school to their books of acceptance, and see how many names are missing from the rolls, or disappear after one or two years. Then check, if you're willing, which names were born to muggle families. Professor Drakkar closed her eyes for a moment. I will not require an apology, either now or when you have seen it for yourself, but I will ask that you be more circumspect in my classes. She flashed another toothy smile. This time Hermione backed down. The simple fact is that muggle-borns are, on the whole, not safe among muggles, Drakkar said, now addressing the whole class again. When the muggles hunted wizards and burned witches, it was often the little children who suffered. A competent witch could cast the flame-freezing charm or keep a bit of flu powder in her pocket to transform the pirate to a portal. But not so a muggle-born, whose education was incomplete, or perhaps had not even progressed beyond the stage of accidental magic, and today the children still suffer. I would describe for you exorcisms and shock therapy, but... Drakkar paused, and the sharpness of her features softened. You're not old enough. Hermione remained quiet for the rest of the class, and couldn't depart for transfiguration quickly enough when it ended. Here, at least, was a class which she could expect to be normal, but there was a surprise there as well, because she recognized, in some ways, the transfiguration professor, and yet he wasn't who she'd expected. Hermione had seen him before, sitting at the high table at every meal, just a few seats from Riddle, but transfiguration was being taught by Bartimius Crouch, or so the syllabus said. There was, now that Hermione thought about it, a certain resemblance to the man she'd seen in Professor McGonagall's photos, and yet the other students had definitely referred to him as Professor Crouch. Hermione resolved to write a letter to McGonagall and ask. It would be crass to ask the professor himself whether it was his brother or his cousin whose death McGonagall had relayed to her. At least there were no additional surprises, and Hermione was able to move along to lunch and then to ghoul studies without further incident. That, too, was a peaceful class. Contrary to what Hermione had thought when she first registered for it, ghoul encompassed a broad category at Hogwarts, and referred to more than just the stunted omnivores that could be found in attics and which the French called goulet. In English, the word had gained currency as a reference for any kind of creature which was connected to corpses, displacing the older and broader Fendlich, which had applied even to Inferi. It made sense, then, that her syllabus had mentioned earth hounds and baobals, just as it covered chameleon ghouls. Before the 18th century, when vampires began to immigrate to Western Europe, they had been little known in Britain and were at the time considered a kind of ghoul. Even now the association remained strong enough that at least half the curriculum could really have been better named Vampire Studies. There was, thankfully, no gore on the desks this time when Lupin taught. But Ghoul Studies had been only a reprieve from the day's allotment of curiosities. Upon her return to the carriage, Hermione was greeted by Samara. "'The library is occupied,' Samara wrote on her slate. She wiped it clean, then added, "'The headmistress is talking with somebody in government.' "'What's the ministry want with her?' Hermione asked. Samara shook her head and tapped her wand against the slate. "'French, not British.' She didn't know who the official was. Samara was from Hispanopule, not France, and there was nothing that Hermione could do, certainly not interrupt a meeting, so Hermione departed for her room. 
After Madame Maxime exited the library, however, she sent for Hermione, who needed to be drawn out of her study to speak with their guest. The headmistress sounded displeased by it, but if that were so, there didn't seem to be much she could do about things. The man's face was weathered, and his hair was cut very short. He was tall, or so Hermione was given to understand, but he sat with hunched shoulders and a slouched back, so he appeared anything but. She had never seen him in person, but he had been present in many photographs, especially in the loon, especially as of late, and so Hermione could not fail to notice the man who had made it possible for her to come to Hogwarts. "'Good afternoon, Mr. October. I didn't expect you would be visiting us.' October nodded. The gesture was perfunctory, almost cold. "'I will be here for most of the year. I'm going to be one of the judges at the tournament.' "'Oh, they haven't explained the details to you, have they?' he smiled. "'Well, never mind that. I don't want to spoil anything. "'And anyway, that isn't why I'm visiting you tonight. "'Then what are you here for?' Hermione wasn't stupid, no matter what October might be thinking with his friendly act. He'd done something for her and gone to great and unexpected lengths to make sure of it. And if he was here, that could only mean that the piper was calling his due.' October drew his wand. It was a stubby baton, no longer than his hand from wrist to the end of his middle finger, and carved from creamy yellow poplar. With a swish and a murmured incantation, his briefcase opened and a pair of mugs rolled out, clink-clinking whenever their handles knocked against the desk. "'May I confide something in you, Hermione?' She nodded unsure where this was going, but willing to indulge the eccentricities of an older wizard if it would eventually get them to the point. I pride myself on my French spirit, but to my shame, I have never developed a taste for coffee. In truth, I can hardly abide anything stronger than water. I have, however, a special appreciation for infusions. October gestured to his open briefcase, which held a glass jar of pale green stems, hollow like straws. I particularly like lemongrass. For lifting spirits and alleviating stress, I find that it works better than most potions. He smiled. You have the eyes of someone who is stressed. Excuse me? she asked. But October was not immediately forthcoming with a reply. With the deft fingerwork of a stage magician, October dropped lemongrass into a pair of mugs, then tapped the rims with his wand and brought their water to a boil. The stems stirred themselves, and the water turned a sort of yellow-green. October passed one mug to her. He brought the other to his mouth and drank deeply, using the lemongrass stem like a straw. But his eyes never left her, and the weight of his gaze was heavy, lingering in her awareness even when she looked down into her own mug. The silence between them was nearly palpable and grew thicker, even suffocating, as the seconds drew on. Finally, Hermione drank and as it flowed down her throat, she felt cleansed. There was a place where there are no secrets, except for those which we keep from ourselves, October murmured. That place can be anywhere. I don't quite understand, Hermione said. October replied, and the answer was satisfactory in the moment, but when she thought about it in the hours to follow, its substance would be somehow absent, and even the absence would slip away from her awareness, like it had been polished smooth and coated with grease. 
If that's so, then you'll tell me why you forced Madame Maxime to let me come to Hogwarts. Soon enough, before we part ways, October promised. How are you settling in? Later, Hermione would recognize, fleetingly, struggling to remember even the remembrance that something had happened here. Much later, she would realize it had not happened yet, not at this point in their conversation. I'm performing well in my classes. I feel like I'm staying on top of my schoolwork, and I think I'm making friends. It's cold, and there are... It isn't perfect, but I don't regret coming. And how do you find Hogwarts? October lifted his mug again, and Hermione realized, or remembered, or would remember, that her own had already been refilled once, twice, before. "'It's like nothing I imagined,' she said diplomatically. "'For good and ill, that was true. "'It is a more forward-thinking place, don't you think? "'You could study whatever you wanted here, "'and none of your friends would face bright of this. "'I'm sure that Britain feels more, how do they say it, "'representative than France as well.' There's so much that's praiseworthy, but I can't help but remember that if it weren't for a fluke of fate, my parents would think I was dead, or maybe even forget that I had ever existed. And I would have been raised to never realize how horrifying that would be. The most necessary potions are often the foulest. Hermione raised an eyebrow. Are you justifying what Riddle's done? Well, I'm perfect. I would be just a vessel into which France may pour its spirit. I would to God that I be perfect now, and say nothing more than, nor fail to say, what is needful. Hermione looked down into her mug, half full with lemongrass infusion. It would be hard to remember later how much she had drunk, but at that time her stomach was full, nearly fit to burst. I want to make things better. I'm, I'm studying law and relations and all the rest of it because, because France isn't perfect, the world isn't perfect, and I'm seeing now in Britain things that could be done that I'd considered, but I've also seen things that I can't consider. October clenched his mug with a jab of his wand. My reach is long, and my grasp is strong, you see. When I threatened Bobertin, that I have the ear of his most Christian majesty, I can do much for you. I can protect your friends or set them in high places, and I can speak in favor of the policies which you desire. Write your proposals, your fondest wishes, and I, the keeper of the seals of France, will set them with my own seals. But your heart must be true. He might have said something more, and Hermione might have said something in reply, but she wouldn't remember later whether it was so. Even the question if it would be hard to sum it up in her mind. "'I'm British, and I won't stop being British,' Hermione said. "'But I'm French, too.' "'That might have satisfied October.' "'Has Riddle approached you?' "'I don't know if he's even aware that I exist.' He is aware, October said. As you said, you are British. Why did you let me come to Hogwarts? She asked again. 
when Hermione thought back to their conversation. This is what she would remember October saying next. It is precisely because you have been faithful to France and yet long for Britain that I ensured you could come here. You are in a unique position, a place of influence comparable in ways to my own, or you could be a bridge between our nations. And though it was an unsatisfactory answer and rang false, Hermione would recall feeling that October's explanation had been more than adequate. And if I do that... Then all of my powers will be at your disposal, and nothing which I can accomplish will be denied you. I thought you only acted as France required. To ensure that you do this thing, there is no payment which would not be in the service of France. Then I'll do it, Hermione said, although, no matter how many times she reflected on her words in the future, she could not muster the same strength of conviction which you could recall feeling in that moment. Their conversation ended abruptly like a finger snap, but October was at the door. This was good. Let's talk again sometime, he said. And then Hermione was alone in the library. That night, while she put her supplies away, a scrap of parchment fell out of one of her books. The words were squished and sloppy. Like its author hadn't been paying attention but the handwriting was unmistakably Hermione's own. Protect your mind. Burn after reading. There was nothing on the other side. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the Archive of Our Own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.